Thank you, Lord. There's such oil on worship this morning. just really feel a river just flowing from the throne of God and man I don't know about you guys but it was just such a time of refreshing for my soul and for my heart um, thank you Lord thank you Lord thank you for a heart of worship Worship really sets us up to be able to receive him. Uh, he responds to our praises, and then it also softens our hearts. So when he responds to our praise, we're able to receive him uh, responding to our praise. So, Lord, we just thank you that you're so faithful, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord, that you would speak to us. Uh, God, that we would hear you clearly, that there would be revelation light that would just birth forth. God, that there would be renewed minds, God, that there would be a, it would create in us a, a greater hunger, a greater thirst for you. Lord, and I pray that even throughout the message and even now, uh, I, wanna, I wanna give us some time at the end to just pray and open it up for ministry. But Lord, I pray that you would just even speak to us, Lord, and how it is that you want us to respond to this word today, Lord, to what you're speaking to us. And Father, just let us be obedient in how it is that you would desire us to respond to your word this morning. Thank you. I want to share something. I'm going to be a little vulnerable with you guys this morning. Um, this word that was laid on my heart, actually, it kind of birthed out of last Sunday. And uh, it was Easter last Sunday, right? Was that last week? Okay. So it was last week. It was Easter Sunday. And on the worship team, you know, I'm engaging and I'm trying to press in. And there was just something different. This was like the first, I don't want to say the first year, but... There was just something different that I wasn't moved. And that sounds so wrong probably, but the truth of the resurrection that we acknowledged last week, it didn't grip my heart, you know? Like I was kind of unmoved by it being Easter and, and that maybe just for me personally, but that kind of concerned me. A little and I was like Lord what is going on even as we were like playing a song and we were worshiping there was a moment where I felt that truth grip my heart and then all of a sudden there was this 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 live voice that was like don't be religious it's just Easter it's it's you know the resurrection and I mean that concerned me like I was you know and it, it really concerned me that I wasn't moved and I, that somewhere along the line I had this allowed this voice to come in um, and to, to make me think that, you know, Rick has been preaching out of Ephesians. And, and what I'm noticing about the Lord is that sometimes in, in my walk with the Lord, I can't see where I'm going. I can't hear anything around me. 
And if you would ask me how, am I, how I'm doing, I'd be like, man, I am doing horrible. I've backslid, I'm not doing great. But what I'm finding is that there's crumbs, that there's little words that, that the Lord continues to, that causes me to have to continue on and to trust, just trust him and to continue to lead on when I don't feel it and it doesn't feel good. And, and Rick, your, your message all out of Ephesians, you started it off by saying, there's more. And that was a breadcrumb for me. That was a stepping stone that even though I couldn't see and I still couldn't hear when he started this you know, a month or so ago, I just knew that when he said there was more, there was that light, there was like that flash in my heart that was like, whoa, there's more. And I wrote it in my Bible, like, I want the more. And most of the time when I hear that phrase, I automatically associate that with there's something new. So I hear there's more and automatically just my mind begins to think it has to be something new. What I began to realize was that there's more in the things that I think I already know. There is such unsearchable depths of God that even on Easter Sunday, listen, I know the resurrection was probably the absolute most, the number one transformational uh, event in human history. There's more to what I think the resurrection was and is. And, and so I, I, I started to think, and at, throughout this last few minutes, I started to kind of look at like, uh, I, I started listening to this podcast, and one of their episodes was Mastering the Basics. And it caused me to start to think, like, what are the basics that I believe about my faith? What is it that I really believe? You know, and I started asking, like, these simple questions, like, what is faith? You know, I say I believe. Like, what is it that I believe? And it caused me to kind of take a look at some of this stuff in a brand new light, and there's more. I mean, there is more to salvation. There's more to the authority that we've been given in Christ. There's more to all of these simple, and I don't want to just say like the, the, the casual things that we usually say because we're Christians. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. Absolutely, I mean, that is true 100% of the time all day long, but there's more to that phrase, and I want the more, man. So thank you for diving in and breaking that open to us because I do believe that the Lord is bringing us into the more. I believe he's bringing us into a greater understanding of who he is, of who he says we are. And I, I believe that the most, the number one most important, and let's all start to just actually like think, what is it that I believe? What is it that I believe about God? I think that that is the most important thing about us, that what I believe about God and who he says that he is will set the foundation and the stage for every other area of my life. If I don't take him serious at saying that he is a good father, I'll never actually be a son. I'll just continue to live as an orphan, trying to strive and get things and do this and perform better. But what I think about God is the absolute most important thing about me. And it opens up and it sets the stage for every other area of my life. And it might seem simple, but I wanna talk this morning about the resurrection. <laughs> I had asked my brother, I texted him the one day, I said, man, do you really believe that the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead is in you? Now, I'm not asking because I doubt it, but I'm like, dude, do you really believe this? He's like, well, yeah. I'm like, yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, good conversation, good conversation. But it, it, it caused something in me to, to say, if I really believe 
Man, if I really, really, really believe everything that this book tells me, well, that's gonna ha- that demands me think a certain way, speak a certain way, respond a certain way that I haven't been, and I want the more. I want the more. This is what I found out to be true, is that as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. As I think in my heart, so I am. And there's more to even that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew 27. I want to talk about the power of the resurrection. We've just come through two years where it has been, I don't know if we fully understand the, how traumatic it really has been the last two years. And I don't know if we real, really will realize on this side of heaven the effect that it has had on our minds, okay? I know personally, and I would love to sit down if you have questions about what I really mean, but I know personally that there has been personal assignments set out against us to keep us extremely distracted, to keep us focused on the wrong things, fixed on the wrong things, expecting the wrong things. And even though, I'm, and this is the place I was at, you realize how much of a rut and how stuck you could become. When you're hearing all of the great prophetic things, you're not seeing it, but yet there's also um, this cry of your heart to see those things take place. And then before too long, the thoughts that you start having aren't lining up with the prophetic words that you've heard. You start speaking in a different way. You start responding. And now you're actually preparing for a completely different thing than what you're hoping for. And I get to break into this and I never saw this before in the scriptures. So this is how powerful this is. I say Matthew 27. I'm just gonna give you kind of a recap here in in verse 57. So we see that Jesus is crucified. We see that Joseph of Arimathea has come, uh, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, which right out of the gate, for he was a disciple of Jesus. He wasn't a a direct family member. So for, for somebody to come and ask for the body of somebody that they're not actually related to was unheard of, let alone for Pilate to go ahead and command the body to be given to Joseph doesn't even make sense, should never have happened. Joseph had uh, purchased a tomb for himself and his family. He decides that this is where he's going to lay Jesus. He wraps him up in in cloth and he lays him in the tomb, guards the tomb with a large stone. We all know this. Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite of the tomb. So they get to see this take place. On the next day, verse 62, it says this, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation. Now this is important for us to realize because the day of preparation was a Friday. So the next day being a Saturday, it says the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, sir, we remember while he was still alive, how that deceiver said after three days, I will rise. They are violating their own Sabbath Listen, they came at Jesus for wanting to heal a man on the Sabbath. And he says to them, which one of you, if you had a lamb that fell into a hole on the Sabbath, wouldn't go get him? Right. And in their in their religious boister, they they no, we would never do something like that. We would never violate the Sabbath. Well, here they are gathering together with Pilate on the Sabbath to, to come. You want to talk about a conspiracy theory? This right here, what we see take place next gives the 2020 election nothing. You know, this is, this is it right here. This is the absolute greatest conspiracy theory that we've ever seen take place. They violate their own Sabbath to go ahead and set forth this plan. 
And this is why I want to say that the enemy has been working so hard. It says this, that they said, remember, they're saying, um, he was still alive. How that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. Listen, the enemy knows the prophetic word that's been spoken over America. The enemy knows the prophetic word that's been spoken over your life, and he's afraid of it. He's afraid of it. They are getting together, the Pharisees, they meet with Pilate and they're saying, man, we, we don't want there to be an uprise. We don't want there to be the, he says, we don't want the, the, this last deception to be greater than the first. They're coming up with a plan to try to discredit the power of the resurrection. God will do any, or the enemy will do anything he could possibly do to discredit the power, your testimony of the resurrection of Christ in your life. He will come at you from every degree. He will get into your mind. He will begin to speak things to you to try to dis, uh, discourage you, to discredit the testimony. Now, he can't take away what God has done on the inside of you, but what he could try to do is steal your testimony of the power of the resurrection. And we see this take place. Verse 64, therefore commanded the tomb. Now, this is the Pharisees talking to Pilate. Therefore commanded the tomb be made secure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way and make it secure as you know how. And I wanna, I wanna break into this a little bit. There's two major schools of thought about what Pilate says here. Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and getting the guard and setting the guard. Verse 28, I'm just gonna read on through, through um, verse 15, chapter 28, I'm sorry. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now, I just wanna stop right there for a moment and make a, and I, I realize this. And sometimes when I read the scriptures, the Lord allows me to see what it doesn't say. And I was like, whoa, Lord, the angel says, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. They weren't going to seek Jesus who was resurrected. Jesus was as much resurrected in this moment as he is in our life today. They had no expectancy to go and find a resurrected Jesus. They were on their way to still see a dead Jesus. But the same thing, I'll just use myself as an example. Oftentimes when I'm praying, I don't wanna say that I'm coming to a dead Jesus, but when I pray and I'm really believe, when I'm laying hands on the sick, is it that I'm really believing that he is who, that he's a resurrected Jesus, that I'm gonna see the miracle take place, that I'm gonna see the breakthrough take place, or am I coming kind of out of religious obligation to lay hands on somebody and not really even believing that I'm going to see what I hope for? They came, they were on their way to see the crucified Jesus. What do you believe? What do we really believe? There's more. Verse six, he is not here, the angel said, for he is risen, as he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell, tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. 
And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Verse 8. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. As they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will seek me. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Kind of a really funny story. The whole reason that they break the Sabbath law, like think about this, because there's more. They get together, they have this meeting with Pilate and they say, you know what, we're gonna set a guard. We're gonna put a seal on in case the disciples come and try and steal the body of Jesus. Well, after he's gone, that's the thing that they decide to go ahead and tell everybody that happened. Like how worthless was your attempt? You see the, the, the enemy's attempt, if we could catch this, man, there's more. The enemy's attempt to steal your prophetic word over your life is useless. There's zero power. The thing that they set out to try to do, they go ahead and make the excuse that that's the same thing that happened. It was worthless, it had no power. I'm gonna break this down for us. There is actually a ton of school of thought and I never even thought about this before. There are um, commentaries, there are debates, secular uh, apologetic, Christian apologetics who have debated and talked about, was Jesus' tomb found empty because his disciples stole his body? <clears throat> I wanna give us some time to pray here at the end. So uh, I do wanna just kind of browse through some of this really quickly. Was Jesus' tomb found empty because his disciples stole his body? This was the whole theory that they came up with, right? When confronted with the historical evidence of the empty tomb, some skeptics claim the reason Jesus' tomb was found empty was because Jesus' disciples stole his body out of the tomb, as we just read. There is not a single writer whose work out of all of the, the centuries of writing and talking about this, there is not a single writer whose work is of critical value today who holds that there is even a case for discussion. Immediately falling, let's see, listen, the disciples had no motive. When we really begin to look at their heart posture in this moment, the lack of expectancy that they actually had they get rebuked in Math, uh, Mark 16. Jesus comes to them. is like, listen, man, I'm he says, I, he sat at the table and rebuked them for their unbelief that when the report from Mary came back that he had risen from the dead, they didn't believe her. They're like, man, this is, you are, you're talking wild right now. There was zero expectancy. But this is so applicable in so many ways in my life that am I really living? In, so we see all the Old Testament prophets. Right? We see from Genesis all the way through, through Malachi, these prophetic words, that the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, Savior of the world. Now, they did not get to see their prophetic word fulfilled. And actually, between Malachi and the time John the Baptist comes, we have 400 years of not a word from God that comes to Israel. 
400 years, they did not get to see the promise that they prophesied come to pass. How much more should we now on this side of it see everything they said take place, come to pass, that the Messiah came, he died for our sins, he was buried, resurrected, ascends into heaven, sends his spirit. How much more in my heart should I be expecting the return of the Lord? How much more in my, in my thought life should I not allow the enemy to try to distract me from the things and the cares of this world and be focused and fixed on, am I, are my thoughts lining up with the word of God? Are my words lining up with the word of God? Are my actions lining up in anticipation for at any moment I could see the, the Lord break through in my life in a way that would completely change me even more so than what I have been. They had zero expectancy to see what he said would take place. They had no motive for stealing the body of Jesus. Immediately following Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, the disciples exhibited great fear of being associated with Jesus and had no motive for stealing his body. The disciples were understandably afraid of the Roman and Jewish leaders and fled as soon as Jesus was arrested. Although Peter followed Jesus at a distance while Jesus was on trial, Peter denied even knowing him on three separate occasions. The disciple John reported that even after he and Peter found the tomb empty uh, and Mary Magdalene reported she had seen the resurrected Jesus, the disciples met behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. Moreover, there is no indication that the disciples actually expected Jesus to raise from the dead, and Jesus later rebukes them for their unbelief in Matthew or Mark 16. <clears throat> More problematic for the theory that the disciples stole the body of Jesus, and, I, and I, I'm not bringing this up because we doubt the resurrection. What I'm saying is that in the light of this, this opens up to me a completely new realm of wow, what do I really believe? This has caused me to just go another layer deeper in there is a power that dwells within us that I know that I am not walking in. I want the more. There is a thought life that is so possible to live in such a place of victory. I'm not, I'm not thinking that way, but I want more. More problematic that throughout this theory the disciple, that the disciples stole the body of Jesus, it fails to explain the disciples sincerely held belief that after they had seen the resurrected Jesus, it fails to explain why every one of the disciples maintained that belief throughout their entire lifetime despite being subject to ongoing persecution. 10 of the 11 original disciples reportedly died as martyrs for the belief that Jesus had been raised from the dead the disciples simply had no motive for stealing the body of Jesus. They had nothing to gain. A rebuttal point number three here is that there was no indication that the disciples were the type of men to engage in grave robbery and blasphemous fraud. They just didn't have that kind of character or that, that moral stature. That's why purity really matters. That's why, that's why it, it breaks my heart, and I'm sure we could all see it, the, the things that are coming up out of the church as far as the adulteries and the scandals. And the enemy is trying to use every avenue he can to discredit the testimony that we carry. And part of the, this, um, there was just, they didn't have this moral, moral character to be grave robbers or to, to have this kind of blasphemous fraud. 
the historical record concerning the disciples' moral character doesn't correspond to them being grave robbers or, not, or con artists. Rather, the historical evidence is that the disciples were hardworking, honest men who lived in, court, in accordance with high moral principles. However, if the disciples stole the body of Jesus, they certainly knew the gospel of Jesus' resurrection was a fraud. And if this is true, then the disciples fraudulently preached to thousands of people uh, on multiple occasions that God had raised Jesus from the dead and thereby committed overt blasphemy by including God in their deception. I wanna take this application here and apply it to our own thought life. Am I, am I living in the light? Am I living with union with the Lord so much that when the enemy brings a thought of accusation against my moral character, when he brings some kind of uh, false lie against me, is my first reaction of no, no, I am a son of God. I, I, I am, I am, there's no weapon formed against me that's going to prosper. There's no heights, no depths, lengths, widths, things present, things past, present, uh, angels that's going to be able to separate me from the love of God. They try to discredit their moral character. Sometimes I allow the enemy to do the same thing in my life. I hear a lie, man, yeah, you know what? I really messed up back here. I need to try twice as hard to do twice as better. And really, there's no shame, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I get to repent and allow him to then give me grace that enables me to walk out what he's called me to do. I want a holy life, I want a pure life. There's no way that the disciples would have endured torture, imprisonment, and martyrdom. All remaining of the 11 original disciples and many other followers were imprisoned and uh, endured great persecution for spreading the gospel of Jesus' resurrection. 10 of the, you know, if Jesus isn't resurrected, we might as well just pack it up and all just go home. I mean, there's, if, if he has not raised from the dead, there's still yet no forgiveness for our sins and we're still, we're still condemned. We're still without hope. But the truth of this, like there's more, there was a, there's revelation and unfolding of everything that they went through based upon what was said about them. Let's just say that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. It just gets more, it just, it's almost, it, it encourages my heart even more because they said that. 10 of the remaining 11 uh, original disciples died as martyrs. Uh, if the disciples stole Jesus' body, they knew that Jesus uh, was not who he claimed to be and he knew he had not uh, been risen from the dead. Why would even one of them choose to endure persecution or die as a martyr for unknown lie? Nothing proves sincerity like martyrdom. Although some people, this is a really amazing truth here. Some people may martyr themselves for something they think is true, but is really false. But people do, no, do not die for something they know is false. If the disciples stole the body, it seems very likely that at least one of them would have recanted belief in Jesus' resurrection, especially when faced with great persecution. I wanna to touch on these two things and then we're gonna open up for some, some ministry time here. This, this two schools of thought here that when Pilate tells the Pharisees, you have, you have a guard, right? We see that, you know, I don't know about you guys, but when, before I found this, I always thought of the tomb scene, um, um, you know, two of their, 
goofiest guards. They're like, yeah, send, uh, you know, two Gomer piles over here, out here to guard the tomb of Jesus. Just helmets on too big, you know, shields upside down, reporting for duty, sir. Like not the military men that we, they actually had. Two schools of thought that Pilate sends a Roman guard, which consisted up to 16 Roman soldiers. A temple, I don't know if you guys knew this. Did you know this, Phyllis? No? A temple guard. Well, it would have either been a Roman guard or a temple guard. Temple guard, 10 devout Levi's. When the Bible is talking that they set a guard, we're talking 16 Roman soldiers. Our Navy SEALs of today, send your best men to guard this tomb. We don't want nothing to be disrupted in Jerusalem. 16 if they were Roman soldiers, 10 devout Levites who, it was against their, their uh, Jewish law for a Levite who was on guard to sit down, lean up against anything, let alone fall asleep. So can you imagine 10 devout Levites, 16 military trained, professional, these guys were trained to not sleep. You mean to tell me that the best you could come up with is that they all fell asleep at the same time? If you were all sleeping at the same time, how'd you know it was to see Jesus' disciples that stole the body? Like first question that comes to my mind, if all of you happened to fall asleep at the exact same time, how did you know that it was Jesus' disciples that stole the body? I mean, like kind of just cuts the whole thing off right there. But this, this was the caliber of the guard that was set. There's no possible way. But yet they went around, they went before the disciples even began to preach the resurrection. They sent out messengers through all um, uh, Macedonia bringing this. Can you imagine somebody coming to your door? Say, hey guys, you know, I don't know if you've heard yet. Um, Jesus wasn't in his grave. Darn disciples stole the body. Don't worry about it. If you hear anything different, just brush it off. Just let it go. That's, that's what they did. They went house to house in an entire region before the disciples came preaching the resurrection to go before them to already try to discredit the possibility of the power of the resurrection of Jesus. They set a guard, or they set a seal. It says here in verse uh, 66, so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. This seal was something that was set by a governing official. It was a signet ring, you know, you, you know, sealing a letter, basically. This was the same type of seal that they set on this stone. To break this seal was a crime against the government and punishable by death. Not one of the disciples were sought after for this crime. If they got past the guards who were supposedly sleeping, Rolling a stone away, you were there, Phyllis, you saw the grave, you saw how big the stone was, the, the trench that it was rolled down in. If you were able to get past the guards in the first place, then you break the seal, which was a crime against the government and punishable by death, and you never get sought after for the crime, what's going on? Something isn't lining up. There was more to this resurrection than I originally thought. They attempted, the attempt to stop it, to stop its testimony was, is, is far more than I ever thought it was. They broke the seal. Not one of them was ever even, even sought after for a crime, for breaking a governor's seal. 
This is how I want to end right here in John chapter 20. You can turn there if you want to. You don't have to. I'm going to read this starting in verse 3. John 20, verse 3. And this to me may be one of the absolute most prophetic signs, acts that I've ever seen. John 20, verse 3 says this, Peter therefore went out and the other disciples uh, and the other disciples and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Verse 5 says, and he, and he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw, and he believed. Now the significance, I don't know if you guys know the significance of the handkerchief, but in, in Hebrew tradition and Jewish tradition, when a master was getting ready for dinner, the servant would come, set the table, get everything ready. The master would come in, sit down. The servant would serve the master his food, and at that moment, the servant would go around a corner and wait for the master to get done. And every so often, it would mean like, here, here's the corner, the master's over here, the servant would stand here and do this, okay? And he would look, and he would keep looking. And it, when the master was done, the sign was that he would take his napkin, he would wipe his hands off, he would wipe his mouth, his beard, he would crumble it up, and he would throw it on the plate. But if the master intended to get up from the table and to go away, the sign to the servant that he wasn't done, that he was coming back, was a folded napkin laying next to the plate. So when the servant looked and he saw the master no longer at the seat, but he saw a folded napkin next to the plate, it was a sign to the servant saying, my master's not done yet, he's coming back. And when they saw this, it spoke to their hearts, this, this natural thing that was so prophetic. When they look into the tomb and they see the linen clothes laying here, but yet the face cloth folded in its own place, they saw and it was a testimony to them, my master's not done yet. My master's coming back and I'm telling you that there's a folded napkin on the table of America that our master is not done with it. He's coming back. The prophetic words that are over your life, there's a folded napkin on the table of your life. The master is coming back. There's still yet a work to do in and through me. And I'm telling you today that I want my thought life. The Bible is full of places where it says, be renewed by the, be transformed by the, the renewing of your mind. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, uh, Ephesians tells us. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And I can tell you that my thought life has got to change because of what I know now. You mean to tell me that all the things that they went through, the things that was said, the disciples stole the body, and 16 Roman guards, 10 Levites, there is no possible way that I could leave here today and not believe that there is something more, there is something deeper about the power of the resurrection. And the Bible tells me that the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is alive and dwells in me. I've got to align my thought life up. If I say I believe this, I can no longer allow the enemy to try to come and devise and to plot a plan. Listen. I, I thought it was absolutely amazing that nobody that was part of his crucifixion 
seeks him out after he rose from the dead. Like this is kind of how this whole, I was like, this sparked an interest in me to look. You mean to tell me that after they heard that he rose from the dead, not one of them thought to themselves, I've got to see it from my own eyes. I've got to go and see this empty tomb, this Jesus that you say has been resurrected. No, nobody pursued him. And I thought that was strange. And I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, man, could it be that there is such a place of victory, that there is such a place of resurrection power authority that is accessible to me, that the things that I struggled with, that the things that sought to kill me literally have no more power to pursue me. And I was like, wow, man. And then the very next thing he says to his, his disciples is that all authority, next time that he gets to sit down with them, the very first thing he says to them is, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. All authority has been given to us in Christ in heaven and in earth. And I don't have to, I don't have to continue to a lesson. I can't help the thoughts that come into my mind, but I certainly can choose which ones I entertain. And if there's thoughts that come into my mind that would otherwise get me to believe that there's a, not the power of Christ that lives in me, that I don't have a victorious spirit, that I'm still an orphan, that I'm not a beloved son, I have a choice. I could decide which ones of those I get to entertain and not. And what I found is over these last two years, man, there has been an assignment set out against us to get us distracted, to get us confused. There's, there's a fogginess that has come upon us. There's a, although our hearts are being awakened, our minds are still distracted. And I just wanna pray for us this morning. If you know that this has been you, that you've been struggling in your thoughtless, if you feel stuck between the thoughts in your head and the cry of your heart, I wanna pray for you. There's a fogginess, I'm telling you, there's a spirit of witchcraft that will be broken off of us in a moment. The fact that the Lord reveals it is just hope that he's go he wants to deal with it. And I don't have to be intimidated any longer. I don't have to live in fear any longer. I don't have to wonder and worry and be fixed on what if this happens and what if that happens? Well, you know what, I, I wanna look and see a folded napkin and say, you know what, my master is not done yet. I don't care what it looks like out here. I've got the word of God alive on the inside of me. I can have the mind of Christ is what the Bible tells me. These are the thoughts that I wanna entertain. And I don't wanna be under the influence of a lying spirit any longer. Whether it's your identity, if it's where you belong, if it's, listen, if you've been struggling in your thought life, I wanna pray. So if that's you and to any degree, you don't even have to disclose what it is that you've been struggling with. with. If there's, uh, if you know that you've been believing a lie or possibly don't even know that you've been believing a lie, but you know that there's just something that's not lining up with, with the, the thoughts in your mind and the cry of your heart. I wanna pray. So you can come up as you feel led. Please allow the Lord, do not leave here today without being refreshed. There is a river that is flowing from the throne of God this morning. Do not leave here being tormented in your minds any longer. Jesus, thank you, Lord. 
God, we thank you for the spirit that dwells in us, Lord. It is the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. We have access, Lord, right into your throne room. We have access right into your lap. Jesus. Thank you, Father. Don't allow the enemy to come at you in any degree that would try to steal the witness, the testimony of the power of the resurrection of Jesus in your life. I want to encourage you, and this might sound silly, you're doing amazing. God is so proud of you. The fact that you haven't quit is proof that you've already won. So Father, I just, over all of us, Lord, I just break off a spirit of shame or condemnation by the power of the resurrected Christ living in us, Lord. I thank you that we no longer have to give attention to thoughts that have not originated from your heart. I don't have to think about myself in any other way than what my father thinks about me. We have over 70,000 words a day of self-talk. How do you talk to yourself? Let it be in line with the way God thinks and sees and speaks about you. Let your heart break for what breaks his heart and if it doesn't, let it go. Yeah, whoa, we've picked up so many things that God isn't even concerned about. Right now, Father, we let those things go. We lay them at the foot of the cross. Lord, if it's not on your heart, we lay it down. God, if it's not on your mind, we let it go. No longer are we going to carry superficial burdens, Lord, that do nothing but weigh us down, steal our energy, uh, take up our time. Jesus.